0: Let's read together the first chapter of Nehemiah and the first ten verses of the second. Get ready. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Shislev in the twentieth year when I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some of the men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and who had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and the loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now day and night. On behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. And we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. And make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. And it came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, so the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it please the king. And if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the land, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it pleased the king, Let letters be given to me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because of the good hand of my God was on me. That I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. And Now the king had, had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to your word now. I ask that you would make it as a sharp sword, piercing, wounding, but also healing, correcting, changing our natural knee-jerk responses to bad news, to what we will encounter in this new year. Uh, we ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. How do you respond when the news is bad? What's your natural response when circumstances are far from ideal? When things in life feel all out of sorts? How do you respond? It's the first Sunday of a new year, and maybe you resolved to do better at something in 2024. You resolved to have a better outlook this year than you did in the past year. But what happens when, less than a week into the new year, the wheels are already starting to fall off in some respect? There's relational strife. There's financial stress. There's emotional angst. There's new physical aches and pains now in 2024. How do you respond when things go wrong for you personally or for the community that you're a part of? I do not know what 2024 will bring for you personally or for us as a community or for our nation as a whole or for the world at large, but I can pretty much guarantee you that some things will go wrong. Some news will be bad. Some relationships between individuals And between whole nations will fray. Some relationships won't survive 2024. Some allies will sour on their support for one another. The money won't be there to do everything you want to do or everything our leaders want to do. There will be emotional stressors for us all in the year to come. There will be unexpected health declines. And health scares in the year ahead. There'll be bad news that no one saw coming in twenty twenty four. How will you respond to it? We largely don't get to get to determine what times we'll see any more than we get to determine what weather we'll have. All we get to determine is how we will respond to the times and the weather we're given. What what will we do? Will we pout and complain, wishing it had happened to someone else? Will we wallow in self-pity because our times were hard and our weather was rainy? Or will we respond by clothing ourselves with something that can stand up to the weather, something that resists the storm? Will we, like Nehemiah, clothe ourselves with the very best response to bad news? Prayer. Prayer. Like Nehemiah, will we make prayer our natural response when things go wrong in 2024? When the family budget isn't to our liking? When the church budget isn't to our liking? Just a heads up, I plan to talk a good bit about the church budget in this Nehemiah series because Nehemiah talks a good bit about it, calling God's people to give in old ways and new. There are callbacks to the old standard of tithing here, but there's also calls to acts of generosity that the people have never seen before. We'll have time later in the series to talk about giving and the new way we're going to give here as a church with every cent cent in this year. But today, we're talking about prayer. That's the way Nehemiah begins. Prayer. How do we respond when the news is bad? How do we respond when the work of God seems to languish? Nehemiah's first answer? Pray. Pray. You pray. Yes, you. Pray. Whether you came in here a committed follower of Jesus or a completely uncommitted follower of anything. Or anyone, you need to hear this message today. Committed or uncommitted, you already know that prayer is a real gut-level response. You know that prayer is a better response than many of your other natural responses to bad news. It beats all your griping and complaining. Prayer beats all your worry and wallowing in self-pity. I think you already know that prayer beats all your other bad news responses hands down. And after our time in Nehemiah today, my prayer is that your new natural response to bad news will become one of prayer. Even if it's never been that way for you before. Now, we've got a lot of text to cover, a chapter and a half to cover this morning. I've got eight headings to help us keep moving along so if you fall out somewhere along the way listening it won't be long before i'm on to the next heading and you can jump right back on the train of thought if you're taking notes give yourself space for eight headings and the first is this the wrong news we see that in verses one through three the wrong news look look again at verse one in verse one nehemiah tells us who he is where he is, and when he is. He's in the Persian Empire's capital city, Susa, during the time of the Jewish exile from Judea. The Babylonians, remember, carted off all the people into exile in 586 B.C., but they didn't last too long. The Persians came in after them, conquering the Babylonians, and under the Persians, some of the Jews begin returning. Verse 2 tells us, that a remnant of Jews coming out of exile have returned to Jerusalem, but their situation is pretty dire. The news from Jerusalem isn't good. It's bad. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, "The, The people bringing the news, they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Jerusalem is still very much a desolated and defenseless city. Probably looking much like a bombed out town after the blitz. Still. The daily lives of people who've returned, therefore, are still full of great distress. Distress and reproach, verse 3 says. At this time in history, Jerusalem is like a test case for the broken windows theory. Have you heard of the broken windows theory? Do you know that? It says that a building with a broken window that has been left unrepaired will give the appearance that no one cares and that no one is in charge. That's the situation in the city. Jerusalem looks like no one cares like no one is in charge. The broken windows theory says that little signs of brokenness and disorder lead to more brokenness and disorder, often lead to bigger signs of brokenness and disorder. A little trash left by the road signals that no one cares about this place, inviting more litter (laughs) and greater acts of littering. All of a sudden there's a washing machine there as well, right? Right? Jerusalem, at this time, is like a huge broken window that no one is fixing. There are broken buildings and walls and gates everywhere you look. Instead of a place God loves, Jerusalem looks like a place that no one loves. The city looks like a place no one cares about, especially the God of Israel. That's part of the reproach. The news from Jerusalem is all wrong, but Nehemiah's response is absolutely right. We've seen the wrong news. Let's see now the right response. Verse 4, the right response. When I heard these words, when I heard the news, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah's response to the bad news is to go before the God of heaven in prayer and with fasting. This response is a far cry from the Stoic, who maintains an emotional detachment from what goes on in the world around him. The Stoic doesn't engage any more than a shrug in the plight of others. Oh well, what will be, will be. It is what it is, says the Stoic. I'm not going to engage with it. It is what it is. Maybe you know a Stoic or two. Maybe you've been tempted to shake a Stoic or two. Engage. Feel something. Come on. Engage. We all know that a Stoical response is not an emotionally healthy one. It's also not a helpful one it's not only a repressive repressive on an emotional level but it's also deep also deeply unsatisfying on a human level deep down we want to engage and be engaged with we want to empathize with others and have others empathize with us when we're grieving we naturally want others to grieve with us when we're rejoicing we want others to be happy with us The response of the Stoic is innately unsatisfying. But you can also go too far in the other direction. You can fall off the other side of the donkey. What if Nehemiah's response to the bad news was only emotions and feelings? What if all he did was take upon himself all the feelings of distress and reproach for all the Jews in Jerusalem, it would have been like taking on heavy emotional burdens on his shoulders, just bearing them. Under such heaviness, he would sink. We would all sink. We all sink into the bog of despair. We all sink unless we have somewhere to cast our burdens, unless we have someone who is greater than we are, who can carry the load for us. And that's exactly who we have in God and what we have in prayer. In prayer, the heart has found its release valve. In prayer, our overflowing cup can be poured out on someone who can take it. Someone who can take it all who can take our every emotional burden and not experience any emotional fatigue. You try to make someone else that person. You try to make someone else a god. A god of another person offloading all your emotions and burdens on them. There will be fatigue. But, in prayer, you cast all your cares upon God... And it does not fatigue him even one little bit. You cast your cares upon him, and he still cares for you. It does not end. It's the wrong news in verse 3, but it's the right response in verse 4. When Nehemiah turns to God in prayer, it is the right response. We see that he doesn't fall off into the ditch of stoicism on the one side, refusing to engage, nor does he fall off the donkey on the other side into the ditch of despair, bearing all the burdens himself. Nehemiah takes the right response, the one of prayer, feeling the cares deeply, but also casting them completely upon the Lord. And as we'll see in a bit, this is the road that leads to real, positive action. You might think prayer leads to passivity, but it doesn't. You might think that a person saying that they're going to pray for something is just religious shorthand for saying, I'm not really going to do anything about that. I'm going to pray, but I'm not really going to do any action. But for Nehemiah, and for us, Prayer paves the way to positive action. Prayer paves the way to be active, not passive. If Nehemiah had responded like the Stoic, then he'd be passive, passively refusing to engage with the brokenness of the world and the plight of his people. If he had responded entirely emotionally, then he'd probably be passive as well, sitting in the dark. In the darkness of depression and despair, unable to do anything. But by responding in prayer, Nehemiah girds himself for action. Bold action that we'll see in chapter 2. But for what remains of chapter 1, we're not just told Nehemiah prayed. We get to see the actual contents of his prayer. We can see how Nehemiah prays under this third heading the confession of faithlessness. The confession of faithlessness. We see this in verses 5 through 7. Look at verse 5. This is what Nehemiah prayed. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive And your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted corruptly against you and not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. I think it should be more amazing to you and me than it is that we can read someone's intimate, heartfelt prayers of two and a half millennia ago, and those prayers still be understandable to us. And more than just understandable, we should be amazed that those prayers still reflect the way you and I pray today. Don't we also, by some inner intuition, begin many of our prayers with praise, like Nehemiah, praising the great and awesome God for this and that, for who he is, what he's done? Don't we also, very quickly and naturally, often move to confession, like Nehemiah, confessing the sins of our community, confessing our own sinful neglect of God and his commandments? Nehemiah does here what we know in prayer we must also do. We must own our sin before God. We must own our failure to do his will. We must own our rebellion. The first step to recovery is admitting you've got a problem. The first step toward redemption is owning you've gone astray. Isn't this What we want from our children. My children mess up, and I'm not expecting them to fix it or try to justify to me why they did what they did when they messed up. The first thing I'm wanting is for them to own it, to confess, Dad, I messed up. Please help me. I messed up. That's what Nehemiah is doing here. In prayer, he's saying, I and my father's house, along with all the sons of Israel, have messed up. We've all acted very corruptly against your will and against your word. We've been faithless. I've been faithless. But I want to change. I wonder this morning as we begin a new year, can you say the same thing? Can you pray that as this new year begins? I've been faithless, but I want to change. I've been faithless in my living. I've been faithless in my finances. I've been faithless in even caring whether I was neglecting your will or not. But Lord, I want to change. If, like Nehemiah, you can own it, there is great reason for hope. And that reason for hope is found in our next heading. We've seen the confession of faithlessness. Now let's see the acknowledgement of faithfulness. Verses 8 through 10. The acknowledgement of God's, God's faithfulness. When we are faithless, God remains faithful. That's a truth we see throughout Scripture. That can be a great cause for hope, but also a great cause of dread. Because God's faithfulness extends to this, to keeping his word to punish those who self destructively persist in their rebellion against him. We see that in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Remember the word which your, you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. God is faithful. To his promise to scatter among the nations, his unfaithful people. In verse 8, God's faithfulness extends to his promise to punish. But thankfully, God's faithfulness also extends to his promise to redeem. Look at verse 9. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered... We're in the most remote part of the heavens. I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. By quoting this promise in prayer, Nehemiah is acknowledging God's faithfulness. He's quoting back to God his own promise. His promise to faithfully bring back those he scattered among the nations. Again, far from being passive and just accepting the situation, Nehemiah is actively marshalling his arguments before God in prayer. In prayer, Nehemiah is appealing to the Word of God, to the promises of God, to the character of God. God must welcome prayers like these because we see them all over Scripture. They're everywhere in Scripture. Lord, because of your promise, because of your steadfast love, because of your character, because of your glory, for your name's sake, please act. Do this, O Lord. Nehemiah acknowledges God's faithfulness in his prayer, and he acknowledges God's grace and power. Look at verse 10. It says, They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power. And by your strong hand. Nehemiah owns his great sin. And his people's great sin. But he also owns his great savior. God is the redeemer. Of his straying servants. By his great power. By his strong hand. He faithfully brought them out of captivity. And he will faithfully bring them back home again. It's after. After all this confession of faithlessness and acknowledgement of God's faithfulness, that Nehemiah finally asks for something in verse 11. Look at verse 11. In verse 11, we see our fifth heading, the needful request. Verse 11, the needful request. Verse 11 says, O oh Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name, and make your servant successful today, and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah's only request is one of action. Make me success, successful today, and grant me compassion in the eyes of this man. And, oh, for just a little context, Nehemiah adds. I'm the cupbearer of the king. That's the man I'm talking about. Nehemiah slides that last bit in so that we know who he's talking about and just how big the stakes are. The man Nehemiah is praying for is the Persian emperor, Artaxerxes. Remember, it was during the reign of Artaxerxes' father that Esther... Dared to enter into the court of the king without being summoned. And unless it pleased the king to extend his scepter to her, it would have been off with her head. So, the stakes for displeasing the king are, shall we say, rather high. The stakes are high. Esther prayed and fasted before her bold action with Xerxes, Nehemiah fasted and prayed before his bold action with Artaxerxes. Nehemiah prayed for success in a court of very high stakes. He prayed for compassion to be found in a king's heart. Now, you might be asking yourself, why would Nehemiah appeal to God in a matter that was up to the completely independent and autonomous decision of a king? Why appeal to God? Because God's control extends even to the independent and autonomous decisions of kings. Perhaps Nehemiah knew Proverbs 21.1, which says, "...the king's heart is like a channel of water in the hands of the Lord. He, the Lord, turns it wherever he wishes." Nehemiah prays to God because he knows who really makes the final decision here. It's not the king. It's the one who guides the heart of the king, like channels of water in his hand. He knows that persistent prayers in God's ears are more effectual than persuasive arguments in the ears of the king. Nehemiah knows that persistent prayers are better than persuasive arguments because God is the one who holds the key to every heart. If you've ever prayed to God for someone's salvation, I hope that you have. If you've ever done that, if you've ever prayed for someone's salvation, then you have intuited this truth already. When we pray to God, we pray to him because he's the one who makes the real difference in the heart. We pray to God because God is the real persuader, not us. God opens spiritually blind eyes. He's the one who turns on the light. We can't do that. Nehemiah prays persistently because he knows that's the very best thing he can do. Going to the one who can open doors that no one can close, who has all things in his hands. As Nehemiah prays, guess what? The doors begin to open. We see that in chapter 2. In chapter 2, we see God answering Nehemiah's prayers by opening up an opportunity. And that's our sixth hymn The opening opportunity in verses 1 through 4. The opening opportunity. Verse 1 says, And it came about... In the month of Nisan, and in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, as though though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city the place of my father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire. Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Prayer, once again, is Nehemiah's knee jerk response. God opens the door of opportunity for Nehemiah to speak directly to the king about what's grieving him. And God opens the door in such a way that it's the king himself who brings it up and asks Nehemiah point-blank what he wants. But even so, Nehemiah is nervous. Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. It's one of those moments your whole life seems to hinge upon, and Nehemiah knows it. It's such a weighty moment Nehemiah says, I was very much afraid. But his fear did not keep him from doing two things. It didn't keep him from praying, and it didn't keep him from speaking up. It looks like he did them both at the very same time together. I know I've had similar experiences, and I imagine you have too. Experiences when you know it's a pivotal moment where you must act, but you are also praying to the God of heaven as you do it. Maybe you're taking the big test, and as you're taking it, you're praying. You're taking your driver's test, and you're praying around every turn. Or perhaps you're praying as you swerve, nearly missing hitting that car. Thank you, Lord, for protecting me. Or as a parent, parent, you're responding to your kid, and you're praying as you're responding, Lord, give me patience. (laughs) Or for me, many times, I've been in a conversation with a stranger who has just opened the door, often unintentionally, for me to talk about Jesus. And I'm praying in that moment, even as I am speaking to them. Or as someone seeking my counsel as a pastor They're sharing a situation, and I'm responding. I'm often pulling a Nehemiah in that moment. Half of me is answering, but the other half is praying. I'm praying for the situation, and I'm praying that God would give me something helpful from him to say, that my pastoral instincts would be one accord with God's heart. If you've been a Christian for some time, I imagine you've had this experience before. Praying to the God of heaven, even as you're responding and acting. If you haven't known that Nehemiah-like response before, well, you've got something to look forward to. It's, It's coming. It's probably coming. In response to prayer, Nehemiah saw God fling wide an open door to make a request of the king. It was scary, but Nehemiah was prayerful. He was obedient. Nehemiah makes his request even as his heart is praying to the God of heaven. And as a result, we see the surprising provision. That's our next heading, the surprising provision of verses 5 through 9. Look at verse 5. Then I said to the king, If it pleased the king... And if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. Nehemiah prays, and the king's response is just, so, when are you coming back? It's a pretty great response. When are you coming back? And just like that, Nehemiah is free to go and do all that God has put in his heart. God has given the king the compassion Nehemiah prayed for. And God also grants a generosity beyond what Nehemiah requests. Look at what Nehemiah asked for. Verse 7, Yes, of the king, please give me letters for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And let a letter to Asaph be written, the keeper of the forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, uh, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. Now. The king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Nehemiah asked for letters of transit. He asked for letters granting him timber to rebuild. But above and beyond that, Nehemiah also gets a military escort on his way back to Jerusalem. God provides, and he provides in surprising ways. His, his provision is surprisingly lavish. I imagine that Nehemiah might be somewhat dumbfounded that it all went so well for him. I've had moments of genuine surprise when in a meeting or a project or a conversation, just surprised that it went so very well. I was praying for this thing, but in my heart of hearts, was I really expecting it to go as well as it did? It surprised me. In a broken world, we should be more surprised than we often are that so many things go so well. God often provides in ways far better than we can foresee. But just because God's provision for his work is often lavish, it doesn't mean that his work will go unopposed. That's what we see in verse 10 as we come to our final heading. We We've seen the surprising provision, verses 5 through 9. Now we see the unsurprising opposition, verse 10. The unsurprising opposition. There's these two characters, verse 10. Uh, uh, One guy, I won't say his name, and the other guy's Tobiah. And uh, they both hear about what's going on, and what does it say? They're very displeased. They were very displeased to hear that someone had come to seek the welfare of of the sons of Israel here is where we need to recalibrate we need to recalibrate our expectations just because the work is the Lord's does not mean we get to do it unopposed just because the mission of the church is Christ's mission doesn't mean there won't be roadblocks there will be there will be hardships That we will have to overcome. There will be difficulties. That we will have to navigate. There will be opposition. That we will have to stand firm against. Why? I don't know why. Or. I don't know why entirely. I do know that God intends for us. To grow through difficulties. I do know. That God intends our faith. To grow through hardships. I do know that Christ grows his church through persecutions. And in the face of opposition. Why does he do it this way? I don't know why. Or I don't know why entirely. I do know that it makes for a better story. We're going to dive into the story of rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the walls next Sunday. I do know that that story would not be half so thrilling if not for the opposition. Remove the tension. Remove the opposition. Remove the villains from the story. From this story or from any Disney film you've ever seen. And you don't have much of a story left after that, do you? Remove the tension, remove the opposition, remove the villains. Without the storm, there are no adventures of the Swiss family Robinson. Without the bad weather, we've far less appreciation for the sunny days. The most memorable sunny days of my life were spent in North Yorkshire, because the weather often had to break for the sun to unexpectedly come shining through. And a real Yorkshireman will tell you, there is no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing. There's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing. Church, clothe yourself in prayer. In 2024. And you will be prepared to grow and attempt great things for God, whatever weather may come. Father, may you write this large upon our hearts in good things and in bad things. May our new, natural, knee jerk response be prayer. May we pour our hearts out to you, knowing you are one who cares for us. You are the one who is able to do work all things after the counsel of your will. Your heart is for us and for our good. May we entrust our cares. May we take off our burdens and gladly leave them at your feet. Lord, may you... You make this our response to whatever comes, whatever weather comes in this new year. May our response be one of pouring our hearts out to you in prayer. And in response, may we feel a peace that surpasses all understanding. Lord, may you work this in us by your grace and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.